I want to talk to you on a practical subject that has been important to me for a long time. Um, it doesn't get talked about a lot in church for a lot of reasons. I did, about nine years ago, I covered this subject, not in exactly the same message, but this topic, and it just felt like I wanted to do it again. I want to talk to you this morning about the incredible power of a promise kept. The incredible power of a promise kept. Say that with me. The incredible power of a promise kept. I want to start with three verses of scriptures. They're short. They're all on the one screen. God said to Moses, so God is commissioning Moses. He has an assignment for Moses. Moses will go to Pharaoh, and God's going to use Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. And Moses kind of says, well, it's great. What am I supposed to say? I can't just show up. And this is in reply. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Exodus 3.12. In the same setting, God says to Moses, I will be with you. I am who I am. I will be with you. 2 Peter 3.13, but according, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. We are so invested in our walk with you, and it's all on the basis of your promise to us. And we want to be like God in this aspect of our lives. And so come, Holy Spirit, a subject that could seem so common and ordinary, but I think has life-changing potential for a lot of people in this room. Bless your word to our hearts on this hot summer Sunday when our minds can go in all sorts of directions. Bless your word to our hearts. Make us ready for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to sing the praises of certain people in the body of Christ here in this church and around the world today. Their names will never be known widely, probably, this side of heaven. But they demonstrate one quality, usually silently, that is most like Father God. There are some people who possess this rare and priceless quality that literally holds the kingdom of God together. There is no quality more needed than this one in the body of Christ it is disappearing rapidly. Somewhere there's a lonely, frustrated woman in this church or in the body of Christ who sits in church quietly thinking to herself, for two cents I'd pack in this marriage, this clod of a husband, 
has never given me one ounce of love and the support I need. I look around and see other people. I'd give my right arm to have a man who would love me like Jesus loves his church, and I don't have that. And she feels nothing warm. She feels nothing hopeful in her situation. And then she quietly remembers saying nothing to anyone. She quietly remembers wedding vows she made. Perhaps a long time ago. And she decides to stick with her marriage and try one more time to make this thing work against all the odds. And I want to say, God bless her for that. Somewhere today in this church, or in the body of Christ, there's a broken-hearted father who sits in church week after week and he thinks to himself... I want my impossible son to get out of this house and never come back. He's disgraced our family. He's broken our hearts. He just makes life a burden for me and a heartache for his mother. And then as he sits, he quietly remembers a day long ago when two big people and one tiny little person stood at the front of a church in a dedication ceremony. And those parents made a promise to God. And that man drives home from work determined to try to love some changes into that wayward daughter or son one more time. And I want to say with all my heart, God bless that man. Somewhere today there's a teenager in this church, a young adult in this church or in the body of Christ who's tempted and pulled in all sorts of compromising situations with friends or a college class or a university class or a high school class. And the voice of the wrong crowd is calling loudly. There are no Christian friends around to give clear vision and support. And then there comes to that young person's mind a day when he or she stood at the front of a church in a baptismal tank and some pastor said will you promise to live for Jesus the rest of your life and they said yes and this young person stops in the middle of that pagan environment and all the temptations that come with it and he renounces the will of the crowd and he strikes out on his own one more time to follow Jesus no matter the cost and I want to say God bless that young person To everyone who hears these words in the middle of a storm, to everyone who is in such a hard spot that the only thing you can control is the keeping of your word. You're the one I want to talk to. To everyone who has a ship that you refuse to let sink to everyone who has a godly cause that you will not give up on 
to everyone who has a person you simply will not abandon more than anything else that I could say to your broken and hurting and tired heart this morning, I want to say you are being like God when you keep your word. You are being like God when you keep your word. Let me pull this together under two points. One about God, and one I want to talk a bit about marriage, though though the, the second point doesn't just relate to marriage, but relates to any moment of promise before God, whether you're married or single. But relates to everybody. Point number one. Everything God has established of his kingdom in this world rests upon the foundation of his word, his promise. Here's an account you'll know about. The Lord said to Abraham, he's not Abraham yet, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went. As the Lord had told him, Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. This is how everything starts. We've heard it since we were kids. God makes makes a promise to an unknown Chaldean. And this man, Abram, burns all his bridges, banking that what God has told him is true, banking on the fact that God will do what he says he will do when it didn't look like it at all. God sets it up right from square one so that Abraham has nothing else to go on but God's promise. There's no evidence. From square one, everything stands or falls with the keeping of the promise of God plus nothing. One of the next key players, of course, in Old Testament history is Moses. And again, the story continues on the footing of God making a promise and being counted on to stay with it. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have seen also, the Lord speaking, the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, and you will... Bring my people out, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses, that great man of faith and power, who who am I? (laughs) You got the wrong guy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you, promise. This shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the Lord on this mountain. Now, both Moses and the people 
to whom these promises are given, they will disqualify themselves for the Lord's blessing a thousand times. They muck everything up. They will enter the promised land and they will virtually self-destruct. They will disobey. They will become immoral. They will worship idols. They will reject the ways of the Lord. They will virtually spit in his face. And yet the whole Old Testament as it unfolds is the story of a God who keeps his promise when everyone else abandons ship. He does what he says he will do for no other reason than he said he would do it. And we, no less than those Old Testament saints, are people who have many promises given to us. Many of which still await fulfillment. Our whole eternal destiny. You know, you can study the whole book of Revelation. Some churches do that, I hear. There are those maniac pastors out there. Our whole eternal destiny, if you simplify it, hinges on a huge promise that we better hope God keeps. Peter speaks, but according to his promise, we're waiting. There's the verb. We're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When Peter says we're waiting according to promise, he means that he means that this is based on that and nothing else. Waiting according to promise. Just a promise. This is the peg. Here we are, all of us. This is the peg we're hanging our future on. You don't have anything else. Just a promise. How do we know evil isn't going to triumph? You watch the news? It's doing really well, isn't it? How do we know we won't just end up on some colossal cultural garbage heap? The evidence of former civilizations isn't promising. They're all gone. The reports from the environmentalists aren't good. The nightly news isn't loaded with hope. What, what is it that makes us, what is it that makes Christians stick their neck out and bet against all visible odds? What is it? Why do we do this? Well, someone came up to transformed fisherman Peter and asked that same question. Peter, this hope, this hope for this future kingdom, where where does that come from what's your evidence how can you be so sure and Peter would say well according to his promise 
We're waiting for it. Really, Peter, that's it? God changes his mind. If God doesn't keep his word, I think we can safely agree we're in a bit of trouble, right? If God changes his mind, that's all he has to do. If he doesn't keep his word, we're in trouble. But we rely. We rely on a God who reaches into a future full of uncertainty and wickedness and problem. God reaches into that future and he makes one thing certain. He creates an island of certainty in the middle of the unknown. And he says, Don, I promise. I promise. Take it to the bank. I promise. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the incredible power of a promise kept. Point number two. And if you're getting overly hopeful, the second point might be a little longer than the first one. I just want to keep you realistic. And I hope you follow me here. I'm talking about marriage, but I'm not just talking about marriage. I'm using marriage as the center of it to spin off a whole bunch of ideas about promise and keeping promise. Okay, you you all tracking with me? All right. Point number two. The marriage relationship most resembles the union of Christ and his bride. Paul says so. The church... In vows sacredly made and faithfully kept, especially when the other partner doesn't. I don't do most of the weddings in the church anymore. Those days are gone. But I attend a lot of them. And dozens of times each year, people usually right there, they join hands in this sanctuary and they say something like this to each other. I, Don, do take you, Rini, to be my lawful wedded wife. They don't use those names. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. And there too, I pledge you my faithfulness. One of the reasons I don't do a lot of the weddings is I found about five years ago that church people don't like those kinds of vows. Church, church people like to have someone get up and say, hey, uh, I'm just picking names. I hope I didn't pick yours. Uh, uh, Gus and Stella, we're just real happy to have you here with our day. Thanks for joining us for our special day. You can get that at a ball game, you know. I want something about vows before God. And I found out people don't don't like that anymore. I think I know why. I think I know why. I think I can see it. And every once in a while, when these kinds of words are still said, I, I, 
I, I, I fight the urge to stand up and just scream out. I guess it wouldn't be appropriate. Do, do you hear what you're saying? Do, do you understand what you've just done? This is huge. Are you listening to what you're vowing? Do you mean this? Do you mean all of it, and do you mean it for that long? Till what? Death. I say that because I've noticed a tsunami-like shift in the thinking of the church about marriage commitment. People don't think of their marriage in terms of vows anymore. We're conditioned. It's not all our fault. We're conditioned by the world not to think in terms of vows. Go on the internet. It's packed with dating services. And and the way it works, I'm not saying they're all wicked. That's, That's not my point. But the way they are set up is they will match up personality traits. So you're, it's, it's stacked to help you find a partner with the same interests, the same personality traits, someone who will be most to my natural liking, someone who will satisfy me. And I guess that shouldn't surprise us, coming from the world system. Look for a mate who will inconvenience you the least. I mean, it's all designed to minimize uh, the denial of self. I won't have to lay down my life for my partner the way Jesus did for me and the way he did for his church. Then there are prenups. Watch the idols in the entertainment industry. This is where people, this is where people vow faithfulness till death and then plan their exit. I'm not at all sure that the difference between a vow and a deal is very well understood, even in the body of Christ. When a deal is cut, each party is committed to his or her part as long as he or she gets what is owed from the other partner. That's the way deals work, business deals, all deals. You give me, I give you. You don't, we sue. As long as you satisfy me, I will try to satisfy you. As long as you treat me well, I will try to treat you well. As long as you're faithful to me, I will remain faithful to you. The difference between a deal and a vow is this. You can get out of a deal. It's not hard to walk out of a transaction, but there's no getting out of a vow. That's what makes a vow a vow. It's something unbreakable. A deal is off when one partner doesn't keep it. A vow is kept even when I don't get what I have a right to expect. Because I made a vow. I used to love the writing of Lewis Smeads. He was at Fuller Theological Seminary. And whenever I went down to... Jack Hayford's pastor's conference, I would race up to Pasadena and go through Fuller Seminary and find all papers he had written and also, oh, it was a beautiful thing. I remember reading these words. These are priceless. 
Here's what Smeeds says. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, he reaches out into an unpredictable future and he makes one thing predictable. He will be there even when being there costs him more than he wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. Don't you love that? He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. I never promised to love my wife as long as she loved me. I never promised to be there for her as long as she was beautiful. She is. I never said that I would be with her as long as she was faithful to me. And she is. In the same fashion in which God spoke to Abraham, I vowed to my wife, I will be with you. That's what God said. I will be with you. And then I said, no matter what, you can count on this. Until my heart stops beating and until the lid is closed, I will be there. You may have to worry about many other things, Rainy. Circumstances can arise that none of us can control. But you never have to worry about this. This I can do. This I can vow. There's something in this. As surely as Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's worth a trillion dollars. Whatever arrangement you have, you can't have a marriage without this. You can have a living arrangement. Christians are falling into that nonsense. You can live with a person. You can feel romantic about a person. You can even feel love toward a person without marriage vows. But you can't be married without making and keeping vows. Love isn't what makes a marriage last. Vows are what make a marriage last. Because love grows in the keeping of vows the way muscles grow in the gym. Without that, all you have is sentiment. Vows protect love from sentiment. Think about it. I don't know. I don't know. I think about my marriage. I don't know which of us will get hit by a bus first. I don't know whether there's a fatal disease lying in the wings. I know something bad will happen one day. You you can't live on earth without that. I don't know which of us will find life more difficult. All I know is I promise I will be with you until I'm dead. That's what I have to live up to.
Now, I need to say this. There's some aching hearts here. I understand that one person can only control his or her end. One person can't make another person stay with them if they don't want to. I'm not saying people have to stay in a, 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 a relationship where there's physical abuse and harm and danger and threat. But for my part, I know what my vow has committed me to. No wonder. No wonder in the ceremony that I used to use. No wonder at the very end we always said these decisions were to be made, quote, thoughtfully, reverently, and in the fear of God. God listens. Let me try to pronounce a special divine blessing on people who make promises to stick with lost causes. People who make promises to stick with a love that feels cold. People who make promises to stay committed when they seem committed to a pain in the neck. Why bother? Life is short. Why take the risk? Why endure the pain? Because in a very special way, you are becoming like God. I want to tell you a story. It'll just take a few minutes. I've told it once before. It actually happened to me. And it illustrates everything I said this morning. It's a true story. When I was uh, pastoring a little church in Lanigan, Saskatchewan, there weren't a lot of things to attend and a lot of things to go to that motivated and challenged and inspired. But annually, we used to have a huge men's retreat in Banff, Alberta, for all of Western Canada, some of the northern western states. And it was at the Banff Springs Hotel. And because my dad used to speak at it, I would truck down to Saskatoon from Lanigan and get a ride and off I'd go to Banff and there'd be 700 men from all over Western Canada at the Banff Springs Hotel and it was just teaching and encouraging and praying and, and I used to just love it. One of the speakers one year was a very successful American businessman, Christian man. He spoke two times on a Saturday. And his wife began to manifest symptoms of a very debilitating, degenerative, uh, physical and mental illness. And she soon experienced uh, massive physical crippling to a wheelchair and total dementia. He shared this story. And this husband discovered early on that one thing that always calmed her and quieted her, he couldn't explain it, but he observed it. They would visit the Pacific Ocean right on the coast, just north of Seattle, and she loved to sit wrapped in a blanket and watch the waves, particularly in stormy weather, come crashing in, and it just seemed to soothe something in her. It wasn't long before she lost all touch with reality. She didn't even know who he was at all. He was a very wealthy man. He was at retirement age. He shared the story how he sold off many of his business interests, millions of dollars. He knew his wife didn't have long to live on this earth, and he wanted to spend all the time he could just being at her side. And he bought a place right there on the ocean where she could look at the waves. 
flash back to the men's retreat. The man is telling a group of us this story as we sit around the table in the dining room at this beautiful resort. He tears up as he talks, okay? Eventually, back to his story, his wife died. But he tells us at the table he always cherished those last years with her sitting in their seaside home. He would bring her coffee, he would wrap her in a blanket, and he would stroke her hair as she watched the waves come crashing in. And she would smile, but not at him. She did not know who he was. A young man sitting next to me at the table asked the question that I'm sure we were all thinking. Couldn't you have found some other way to do this? Couldn't you find an institution? Couldn't you, like, you sell all these things, you buy this place. Why would you do all that for someone who couldn't even identify you anymore? It must have just been difficult for you. Sometimes in the providence of God, you hear something that you never forget. I can, I can list six times when I heard something that changed my life and I remember to this day. And he looked at each of us around that table and he said, I did it because I never promised to love her as long as she loved me. I promised to love her until death parted us. I was in my 20s and I just thought, God bless you. There's a guy whose story is never going to be famous. But that's where he's most like God. The keeping of a promise simply because the promise was made and no other reason. There it is. There it is. Behold vows putting muscle in what could have been a diminishing love. Behold the incredible power of a promise kept. A race well run. Behold one small place in a world of chaos and suffering and sickness and pain and muck. Look at one place that did not collapse. One place that was held fast and sure. Just as my future in Christ. Your future in Christ is held sure by nothing more than the promise from Jesus. If he ever changed his mind... And who could stop him? We'd all be doomed. Let me wrap this up the best I know how. This is for everyone. Married, single, young, old, rich, poor. What is gained, what is gained in, a, in an incredibly hard situation? What is gained by keeping your promised moment in baptism? Dedication, marriage, commitment. What is gained? 
An easy life? <laughs> Not in a million years. It'll make your life ten times harder than it is now. Ten times harder. What is gained? You become godly. You become godly. You, you, you participate in the character of God. Christ is more deeply formed in you. You shape your future against all odds. You, you, you experience the total freedom of not being shaped by anything other than the cement of your own God-shaped commitment. You step into an uncertain future, and with God's help and blessing, you create a future of your own that would never have happened without your promise being kept. You become like God. Read this with me out loud. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad God didn't just make a deal where if you measure up? If you're not too hard to live with. It's a promise. It's a promise. When you keep your promise, you are most like God. Everyone said? Let's pray.